You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Well, thank you. It's a real privilege for me to be here with you. I have watched with great interest the planting and the growth of this church over the last seven to eight years. And it is um, something that Trent and I have been trying to pull off for a while for me to come and visit and see and be able to speak for you. He is a dear friend. He and Andrea have been friends of ours for a number of years. I trust you know you have a really good lead pastor in Trent Griffith. And uh, that's... That's, um, that message is essentially why he asked me to come to tell you all that. So, I'm, so let's sing, it will be done. So that's, uh, that's it, no. He wanted me to come today and to uh, bring a message from God's Word. And so we're going to do that from Revelation chapter 4. So if you have a copy of God's Word, why don't you grab that. And you can see behind me the theme, singular theme, for our time in God's Word today is the Word glory. And let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. God, come now, please, and do what your Spirit does so well, to take words off of a page, inspired words, and make them leap with understanding and graft them into our hearts. We pray you would help us to see things that we would not be able to see apart from your help today. God, I pray we would understand the beauty of your glory and then know how it is to be applied in our lives and th- that today we would see everything differently because of what we see in this text. So be honored, I pray, and help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think for a moment, of the most beautiful place that you've ever visited. Maybe it was a vacation spot, maybe something you visited while in work, maybe for some of you who are married, it was your honeymoon. But think of the place that when you think, like, this is the most beautiful place I've ever been, think of that. You got it in your head? Now, if you were to choose one or two words to describe that place, what words would you choose? Maybe stunning, maybe beautiful, unbelievable. My, my guess is if that place has somehow lodged significantly in your heart, there are not sufficient words, weighty enough words, to try and capture why this place is so meaningful to you. You may take your phone out and flip through some pictures, but you'll notice that after about the 14th or 15th picture, people are kind of glazed, look over their face, or, or maybe you put them together in a little picture book, or you're one of those few people that still do um, creative memories. I used to call it creative spending in our home. Um, and, and you look through those pictures, and, and after a while, people just kind of lose interest. And eventually, you'll, you'll find yourself saying something like, well, you know, You just kind of had to be there. The reality is that special places, special moments, that there often aren't words that are weighty enough to capture the full experience of the sights, the sounds, the ambiance. If you were to choose one word to describe heaven, what word would you choose? 
The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 was caught up into paradise and it said that he says that he heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. In other words, Paul essentially said, you had to be there. I can't even describe what it is that I saw. The Apostle John is on the island of Patmos. He's exiled there. He receives a vision from Christ, and he's instructed to write what he saw. And thankfully, John did the very best that he could to try and capture what he saw. And if you read the book of Revelation, you'll you'll see words emerge like power and honor and, and mystery and worship. But if I could choose one word to describe heaven, it would be the word glory. And this morning what I want to do is to try and help you see what is in Revelation 4 and to remind many of you who know this intellectually but you don't maybe feel it affectionately like you should, to remind you that beyond the world in which you're living right now, beyond the the challenges that you're facing, beyond the temptations that you're struggling with, beyond the, the, the dynamics of anxiety that you're wrestling with, there is another realm with a vision of the beauty of who and what God is. And that realm is real and that realm affects this realm. Right now, But the problem is, is that often we get so consumed with what's happening here that we forget about the glory of another world. For a number of years, I lived in Holland, Michigan. I pastored a church there, and when our kids were little, our standard vacation was to go up to northern Michigan, and we would camp for a couple weeks. And Holland, Michigan doesn't have nearly the number of lights that Indianapolis does, But northern Michigan doesn't have any lights compared to Holland and hardly any lights compared to Indianapolis. And the beauty of being up north is that when all the lights are turned down, when you look up, you see the beauty of the stars that are there. But they're just hidden. And what I want to show you today is that there's a glory in the Bible. There's a glory that is there. But in some respects, it gets hidden And when you understand the beauty of God's glory and when you understand the implications of how it works in our lives, it not only changes how you see the Bible and see the church and see God himself, but it also changes how you see challenges and difficulties and trials and temptations even now. So in the Bible, the word glory, if you're taking notes, write the word weightiness down. Think of it as glory is something that when it enters, it displaces everything else. So in the Bible, glory indicates weightiness. It also indicates beauty. In the Bible, glory is strangely frightening and exhilarating. It's both. Glory is both serious and amazingly attractive. A few examples In the Bible, Moses desired to see the glory of God in Exodus 33, and he was put in the cleft of the rock as God's glory passed by. Isaiah 6, probably the seminal Old Testament text on God's glory. Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God. He sees God descend down, and he hears, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah's response when he encounters that glory is the normal response of human beings when they experience God's glory. 
Isaiah says, woe is me for I am lost or I'm undone or I'm broken or I'm coming apart at the seams. The idea is I have seen something and in seeing that beautiful glory, I'm realizing who I am and in light of who God is, who I am is not good. In John's Gospel, when he introduces the person of Jesus, when he tries to describe and and indicate what Jesus is like and what it was like to be near Christ all the time. John says this, We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. On the other side of the equation, in Paul in Romans chapter 3, do you know how he describes the lost condition of mankind? He says, All have sinned and fallen short of the what? glory of God. In fact, if you want to do an interesting study, the book of Revelation uses the word glory 17 times. So you put all this together and what you find is that the word glory is incredibly important. Here's why. Because glory is central to the category and the concept and the characteristic of who God is. Glory is what God is like. Glory is what characterizes the realm of his existence. Glory is the word that captures the otherness of God. It is the best word to describe the the worth of God, the power of God's rule, the beauty of what makes him God. In fact, this word glory tries to capture that thing about God that makes him the most attractive, inspiring, and frightening reality in all realities. In fact, I believe that one of the joys of heaven will be that we will see and behold the glory of God, and in seeing that glory, we will not only know what he is like, but we will marvel that he rescued us and saved us. We will see his glory, and we will know that you know more about me than even I know, and here I am in your presence, and the focus is on the Lamb, because the only reason you can be in the presence of the glory of God, in your unglorified position as a sinner, then being glorified through the person and work of Jesus, is because that there is a Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and so attention of heaven is focused on Christ, because the only reason that you're there is because of the finished work of Jesus. And I think that all of heaven is going to be this eternal celebration of the beauty of God's glory and the contrast of what it was that we were rescued and saved from. So what's in Revelation 4? This text, Revelation 4, is important because it's the first scene that John sees. It's first for a reason. Prior, chapters 1 to 3 were all about the seven churches. And then the very first scene that John is given is a glimpse of the heavenly realm. He's able to see where God dwells. The book of Revelation is a a challenging and a wonderful book. It's, It's written not just to tell you about the future. Certainly it does say things about the future. But it's a book written to churches in the midst of very challenging times. Persecution was starting, and John writes to them, and is given instruction to write to them, so that they will not only know about the future, but so they will have comfort and help where they live even now. 
See, the book of Revelation is about the restoration of creation and the bringing back of all of mankind to God's glory through the sacrifice and the work of Jesus. And when people are hurting, when followers of Jesus are hurting, it's really good to be reminded that beyond the lights of which, in which you live, beyond the culture in which you're struggling with, there is a glory in another realm. There's a king who is seated on this throne. And it's good for believers to be reminded that our king is not in Pennsylvania Avenue. Our king is in the heavenly places. It's good to be reminded our citizenship, while yes, being a part of the United States of America, is not ultimately that important of a citizenship, that we are aliens and sojourners in this world, and our King of Kings has already conquered the greatest foe in all of the universe, and when the smoke of history settles, there'll be one person who's standing, this lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And that word is meant to be given to those who are struggling in the midst of hard times, so they can be reminded what life is all about. I mean, we're in some challenging cultural moments. Just in the last number of weeks, there are racial tensions that are becoming more and more evident. They were, they've been there for hundreds of years in our country, but now people have cell phones and can record them, and so people can, everyone is a reporter and can see what's really happening in our culture. We have challenges in law enforcement and trying to figure out how do you hold a culture together that's losing its moorings. We have coup attempts that happened even over the weekend in Turkey. It seems like there's so much instability. And then we even have significant changes even within our own state politically. All kinds of things are up in the air. I run into believers all the time who are just wondering what in the world is going on. Revelation is helpful because it reminds us I'll tell you what's going on. God is in the process of restoring all things to himself, and at the end of the day, the book of Revelation tells us, Jesus wins. Amen. When I was a kid, there was a, a song, there was a, a group, I, I, I guess the group was even in this area last weekend, or this weekend, named the Imperials. Some of you know this group? How many of you know the Imperials? Raise your hand. I'm going to date you on that one, okay? So... And they have a song that goes something like this. I read the back of the book, and we win. <laughs> and that's what Revelation is about. So what I want to do is walk you through this subject of glory, the display of God's glory, the centrality of God's glory, and the response to God's glory from Revelation 4. Talk about what this glory is, and then I want to, as we go along, make some applications, because I think this word has far more practical effects in our lives than what we think. First, the display of God's glory. Look at verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So this door is a portal of sorts that's going to move John from this vision of living on Patmos to now a vision of another realm. And the first voice, this, this voice has been a voice that he's heard before, Revelation 1.10, it's the voice of Jesus. This voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So again, this is the first scene, this is the first moment, this is the first thing that John sees. And it's important in its primacy in the Revelation. There's a reason why it's first. Verse 2 says, and at once I was in the spirit and, hear that word again, behold, it's like a spotlight word, behold, what's there? A throne. 
So John is brought into the heavenly realm. He's brought into the throne room of heaven. This throne is the room from which God rules and reigns. It is the sacred and hallowed place from which the entire universe is governed. And John is now brought into this throne room, the center of the center of the center of the universe where God is. John is there. That he attempts to describe what he sees. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. The word jasper, is a, it's a gem. It um, was used in the Old Testament in the high priest's breastplate in Exodus 28. It's, it's the gem that's used to describe the, the beauty of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. You, you could think of it, when, when we struggle to describe something that's important or beautiful, we might use another gem in our world, like diamonds. For instance, my wife and I are put up in a wonderful hotel, thanks to your church, Hampton Inn down the road, and when we pulled in, I, I chuckled because there's parking reserved for those who are part of the Diamond Elite Club. I'm not a Diamond Elite Club member, but it sounds pretty cool, right? There's no signs for the wood normal people, right? No. You don't have those. You have diamond elite. It's not enough just to be the diamond parking. Not just enough to be elite parking. No, no, no. It's diamond elite parking. And you know when you drive up, you're diamond elite. Like, oh, that should be something pretty important. It's not like straw and meaningless parking spots. This is diamond elite the idea is that we use gems to describe importance and particular beauty, and that's what John is doing here with jasper. Then there's, there's a, a rainbow that's around the throne. It says around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Why, why a rainbow? Well, all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, a rainbow was a symbol of God's mercy, a symbol of his promise to not destroy the world with the flood again. So what John sees first, he, he, he enters into this realm, he sees a throne, this throne is described with beautiful gem-like language, and there's a, a mercy symbol that's over top of this throne. So this whole vision is designed to send a message about the display of God's glory. What John is beholding here is the beauty of God's glory. And don't miss the fact that this is the very first thing that John sees. He gets into heaven, and the first thing that is stunning is the beauty of God's glory. God's glory, friends, is that important? It's that central to God's work? that it takes the primary place in this vision. You know, the glory of God is so central that when Paul in Romans chapter 1 describes what sin is, he connects sin to the issue of glory. Paul says that the essence of sin is the exchanging of the glory of the immortal God for our own glory. So at a very foundational and fundamental level, anything that we do that is sinful is at its essence an exchange of glory. So the things that we want to say, somebody says something to you that 
you feel like is disrespectful and suddenly this thing clicks in your soul like how can they say that to me and you begin forming words and begin to process them in your brain and they get right on the tip of your tongue and you're ready to lash out at that person you need to know that when those words come out it's not just sinful communication it's not just being defensive at the end of the day underneath all of that is glory the reason why those words are offensive and the reason why you're ready to punch back is because somebody disrespected your glory at the essence of what sin is is the matter of glory. It's a glory battle. Listen to what what Jonathan Edwards said. He said this, To go to heaven, to fully enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations on earth, better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any, or all earthly friends. And then he says this, These things, these are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. What's he saying? He's saying that all there, there are beautiful and attractive things on earth. There are things that we long for and desire. There are, are things that are good and there are things that are wrong. But at the essence of what life is all about is an issue of glory. You could really summarize the difference between a believer and a non-believer as what they've done with glory and what they see and what they long for. Some of you, 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 you work really hard at work and you work harder than what you need to. And you work and you work and you work and you work and you work. And if you're honest, part of the reason why there's, there's anxiety within you and part of the reason why there's this, this, this penchant to, to be overproductive is because at the end of the day, you're not just interested in adding value to your company or being a good steward of the resources or the, the stewardship of the gifts that God has given you. At the end of the day, what you want is VP behind your name. You want the, the office with the plants in it. You want the corner office with the door. You want people to say yes sir, yes ma'am to you. And at the end of the day, you know what's underneath all of that overworking? It's glory. Some of you find yourself sinfully attracted to things that you shouldn't be looking at. And it's not just an issue of lust or sexuality. At the end of the day, it's about glory. You want to be wanted even if it isn't real and it isn't just about some lustful attraction it's about glory so at the end of the day what's underneath who we are as human beings and what's underneath the essence of creation what's underneath the essence of temptation and what the essence of heaven is is this matter of glory in fact so much so that the apostle paul describes the enemy's strategy as his attempt to try and blind us to the beauty of god's glory To convince you that there are better glories for you to pursue. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, my prayer for you is that as I'm preaching through Revelation 4 and as you hear the very words of God, that something within you would begin to lift, like blinders begin to fall off of your eyes and you begin to hear what I'm saying and see what's in the Bible and that strange that you would say, you know what, I actually think this is, I actually think this is true. And in, and in believing, you would then receive and in receiving, you would be saved. And when that happens, it means that your eyes have been opened and you see what you couldn't have seen even a few minutes ago. That means if you're a follower of Jesus, when you came to faith in Christ, whether you were 6 or 16 or 36 or 60, it means in that moment when you heard the gospel and you opened your heart and received Christ, you need to know that when that happened, you didn't do that all by yourself. That it was God who was at work in you. In fact, Paul goes on to say this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the same God who said light is the same God who in your life said life. The same God who said, let the universe team with living creatures is the same God who called you out of your own self-destruction and your pursuit of your own glory and woke you up and in my case said, Mark Rogup, come forth, and I woke. My dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and I followed him because he changed my definition of glory. If what I'm saying to you resonates within your heart, if you hear my words and you're like, yes, I love this, yes, this is true, you need to know that any thought that you have about this being lovely or true is not because of you, it's because God has changed the appetites of your heart and life. He's helped you to see and savor the glory of God, which never would have happened had he not intervened in your life. And this glory is on display in Revelation 4, and it's first because it is incredibly important. Text goes on and we see how central it is, beginning in verse 4. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. So now the scene moves, not just from this throne, but we see how, how central it is, and the, the camera sort of begins to pan out, and we see that there are 24 elders that are encircling this throne. They're clothed in white garments. They have golden crowns on their heads. We'll talk more about these crowns in a moment, but think of them as the rewards that God has given them, or the delegated authority, or the honor that has bestowed upon them. God was the one who gave them crowns in verse 5 from the throne came flashes of lightning rumblings and peals of thunder seen that before in the old testament at mount sinai there's important symbolism here and then the text goes on there's seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of god and before the throne there was at, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal there's like a like a floor of heaven that both magnifies the beauty of god's glory and serves as a barrier between heaven between heaven and earth and then we see four creatures they're each positioned near the throne full of eyes in front and behind, according to verse 6. 
Verse 7, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What we see is this perpetual centrality of God's glory being communicated as this throne emanates peals of thunder as these four almost frightening looking creatures declare God's glory and his majesty and we see the centrality of God's glory as the camera pans away and we see it in the middle of this scene of heaven in Revelation 21 at the end of the book We see the same kind of concept that the glory of God is central in that in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no need for the sun. Verse 23 says, Revelation 21, that the glory of God gives the new heaven and the new earth its light and its lamp is the Lamb. So notice this, the life-giving sun, the center of our universe, has been replaced by the glory of God. I mean, what could be more central in our life, practically, than the sun? Our earth revolves around it. We sleep based upon when the sun goes down. We set our clocks by the sun. We measure our days by the sun. Some of you, you you gauge your emotions by the presence or absence of the sun. Depending on what you see in the Weather Channel, you're happy or not so happy. I mean, I I lived in this area for 11 years. I I know what it's like here and not in June, July, and August. People are like, oh, Michigan and Indiana and Northern Indiana are awesome in August and July. I'm like, yeah, you should be there in November, right? Or February. I remember pastoring people through those months where, you know, there's there's no sun in the sky and it's dark and cloudy and gloomy and it it does something to people's psyche. In fact, I just determined as a pastor that that we never voted on anything in the month of February as a church (laughs) because people were just determined to say no about anything. (laughs) I came to them and said, hey, we're going to not increase the budget at all this year. No, no. Or, um, Hey, we think that the Bible is good. No, no. I mean, they were just, just determined. Why? The sun comes out and suddenly, oh, they're happy and it's all good. Oh, yeah, yeah, we love our church now. I, just, I never took criticism as serious in February. I knew that a couple months from now people were going to be just as happy as could be. Why? Because the sun was out. The sun is central. And in the Bible, at the end of Revelation, the sun goes away and the glory of God takes its place. The glory of God is that central. It's also central when it comes to suffering. Paul says this in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So hear that. I consider that the sufferings right now, they're not worth comparing to the glory. Here's where some of you are struggling. It's the fact that you don't know and love the glory of God enough 
so that when suffering comes, if you weigh out the glory of God versus the life as you want it, it's a hard toss-up because you don't know and don't love the glory of God sufficiently enough, and that's why you get angry and depressed because your life isn't turning out the way that you wanted it to. And the hope of the Bible is this. If you could see and savor the beauty of God's glory, if you could get around your, your head and mind and heart around the beauty of this glory, then when sufferings or difficulties come, it helps you to be able to assess the value of, yes, my life is hard, but this is going to result in a greater glory. And that's the glory that I ultimately love and I'm living for. This is, what, this is what suffering does in a sort of positive way, is it, it surfaces what we really love. And the question is whether or not we really love God's glory or sanctification. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what that means is that I can look back on my life and you should be able to look back on your life and you can see incremental changes in your life where more and more and more, you're, you're looking more and more like the image of Jesus. There's, there's more and more fruit in your life, miraculous fruit. You're a different person because of the way in which God has worked in your life and that difference in you is a reflection of the beauty and the glory of God. And then you gather together on the Lord's Day and you, 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 you gather in this wonderful church and you see God's glory in one another and you get to do life together and you see this brother or sister how they're growing and changing and you see the manifest presence of God's glory in their life. That's what spiritual growth is all about and you ought to rejoice and thank God that you're seeing that. And then when you get to glory, when you get to heaven, to know that everything now has been made perfect and right not only in the world but also in you and to think that the glory of God in some way is reflected in you and here you are a sinful human being who has been made in the likeness and the image of Jesus and we not only get to see him but when we see him we are like him this this idea then becomes not only central for the future but it becomes central for how we live even now so we see the display of God's glory, the centrality of God's glory, and now finally we see the response of God's glory. Verse 9, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, so they're, they're doing this continually over and over and over, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. They worship him who lives forever and ever. And notice what they do. They take their crowns and they cast their crowns before the throne. Why do they do that? Because what they have is their own individual little glory, and in comparison to God's glory, it means that their glory needs to be given to Him because God's glory supersedes their own glory. In fact, the reason they've been given these things is in order to be conduits to show something about the beauty of who and what God is. And they say, worthy are you, verse 11, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We see this, this beautiful picture of these, these, these elders who are falling before the throne. 
These creatures say continually, worthy are you, O Lord. Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And as they do, 24 elders fall down before him. And this vision repeats over and over and over and over. And the point that John wants us to understand in terms of what he is seeing here is that God's glory is not only central, not only is it displayed, but it requires some kind of response. Can you imagine what it would be like to have instead of 24 elders falling before the throne, if only 23? elders fell before the throne and one of the elders stands straight and holds his crown and says I don't want to fall down I mean I'm great too I deserve this crown I earned this crown I worked hard for this crown this this crown is something that says something about me there's there's no room for that and that that's a dangerous thing to say when you're in the presence of the one who is worthy of all honor and praise and adoration and this is why in the bible why pride is so incredibly not only despicable but frankly it's idiotic and even suicidal to be able to think that we're something in light of the beautiful display of who god is in terms of all of his glory that means that any position of honor that you've received any talent that you have the financial provisions that you have been given you have some kind of authority in life you better be reminded that one day that's all going to fall before the feet of jesus so before you start to think you're something you better get an understanding of god's glory because that'll keep you in the right place the solution, friends, to pride is not just humility. That's a solution. The other solution is to get a really big view of who God is and to see and savor his glory. This is why the regular gathering of God's people is extremely important. Because what can happen to us throughout the course of our week all week long, we're being sold a false bill of goods regarding shadow glories. We're being told that we're the center of the universe. And, and our heart even colludes with that because somewhere inside of us, we want to believe that we're the center of the universe. And you need the regular gathering of God's people under the authority of the word to reset your mind and to sing great things about God to be reminded, oh, that's right, I'm not the center of the universe. He's the center of the universe. Anything that I have are, are gifts from him and he's the most glorious reality of all realities. We don't have time, but chapter 5 just continues. I'll give you a summary. What happens is a scroll emerges representing the salvation of God's people and the plan of God, and John weeps because there is no one who is worthy to open the scroll or look into it. In other words, God's glory is here, and the plan of God is here, and there's no one to bridge the gap, and suddenly... John hears, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And suddenly, the scene shifts in Revelation chapter 5 because now the lamb becomes the focus as they sing in verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and, your, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Verse 11, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Notice the expansion of this 
beautiful praise to God's glory, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Notice, everything that ever is or was is now saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the first thing that John sees when he gets into heaven. Why? Because understanding this changes everything. It changes when temptations come. And the lure of lust or greed or pride say, you need glory. And this text severs that and says, that's not glory. That's a shadow glory. Revelation 4 and 5 says, now this, that's glory. You need this when a cancer diagnosis comes in and you think, how in the world am I going to make it through chemo? Or everything about my life has just changed. And you think, this is not the way my life was supposed to be. Or your beautiful child that you raised in your home says, I'm not a Christian anymore. And they, they go AWOL. And you look in the mirror and think, what have we done? How did this happen? And you're embarrassed. You come to church and you think people are talking about you, how your kids are following Jesus. And you think of all of these things that you want and the reality is you can't grab a hold of them. Where, did you, where do you take your heart? You take your heart to the fact that all things work together for good to those who love and know Christ. And we're being formed and made in the image of Christ. What is that image? To be made like his glory. That you can rest and say somehow, some way, this is producing in me a glory that I could not make on my own. So if you could choose one word that describes the essence of heaven, if you could use one word that describes the realm of God's existence, I hope the word that you would choose, because I think this is the right word, would be the word glory. A word that doesn't just describe what God is like or what his realm is like, but also becomes the foundation for how we live even now. Revelation 4 gives us a window into heaven to see what the glory of God is like in order to give us a vision of what it means to worship and what it means to live. So that we could say with the psalmist in one Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Can you say that? Can you say that in particular categories of life? Not not to me, not to me, O oh Lord. Part of the reason that we gather together is to remind one another, not to us, not to me, but to your name give 
glory because in seeing and savoring the beauty of God's glory it not only helps us to know what heaven is like and what God is like but it also helps us to know how do we live today how do we talk to one another at lunch how do we love one another in the context of our marriage how do we sever the roots of sin in our life how do we express singleness in a way that makes much of Jesus it happens by understanding the centrality the beauty the power, not to me, but to your name be glory. Father in heaven, we pray that you would sever in our lives the roots of glory pursuits that plague us in so many ways. Make us a people, even now, who by this gathering, we'll see things differently for the rest of this week. Help us, when we open the scriptures, to see the Bible as a portal for glory, a window through which we can see the vast mountainscapes of your beauty and your majesty. Lord, help us to turn from the things where we just conveniently rob you of glory that you deserve and make us a people that through suffering and through hardship that God we could believe that somehow some way this pain is going to produce a glory that is beyond all compare so Lord we say not to us but to your name O God be glory we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.